Hey everyone, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. I have another fun one for you here today with Caitlin Gerben. Caitlin, of course, just coming off her amazing victory at Trans Grand Canaria, one of the premier races in the world, and a race that I was recently at. Caitlin, of course, lives here in the Pacific Northwest. We wanted to do something in person on the island. That didn't work out. We wanted to do something here closer to our neighborhood. That didn't work out either, of course given the circumstances. So we connected for a Zoom conference, as we're all doing nowadays. And Caitlin had a lot of great things to say. We talked, of course, much about her amazing victory at Trans Grand Canaria. What went into it, she admits that it was probably the best performance of her career. So it was really fun to kind of explore and discover kind of what goes into those sorts of kind of career-changing performances, those days and moments where you sort of launch into the next level. But of course, much goes into that behind the scenes prior to that ultimate thrilling moment. So it was cool to talk through that with Caitlin. We also go through her background a little bit, how she got into the sport. And then we talked about more human stuff, body image things that she's been open about and went behind the curtain and talked about sponsorship stuff a little bit. Hope you guys find that interesting. I think it's little spoken about and even less understood what some athletes are considering when they are thinking about who they align themselves with. And of course, Caitlin just changed sponsors this year. And so I thought it would be interesting and relevant to talk about with her. So Caitlin, thanks so much for your time. I hope you guys really enjoy this one. Okay. I'm here with Caitlin Gerben. Uh, because of the, the miracle of modern technology. Uh, we're on Zoom as uh, feels like everybody is nowadays in all contexts of life. Of course, we were hoping to do this in person, um, but given the, the circumstances around the world, um, Caitlin joins me virtually. Caitlin, it's very nice to see you. You too, yeah. How are things in Seattle? It looks like a fairly sunny day out the window there. Uh, it's the weather has been very, I think, typical spring, very moody, where it's like pouring rain one minute, hailing the next, and then suddenly the sun comes out. So it's driving my dog crazy because she wants to go outside every time the sun comes out. <laughs> but that doesn't always align with when I'm available to take her outside. Oh, I think both of us might experience some canine related interruptions here during our conversation so I hope the listeners will forgive us if that becomes the case but (laughs) yeah it's similar here where yeah the sun comes out and then all of a sudden it's like raining and hailing but um, anyway you live in Seattle I live in Portland we were hoping to do this in person Um, we couldn't find time for it while we were together just a few weeks ago in uh, Grand Canaria which of course I want to talk about a lot uh, being that we're just three weeks removed from what was an amazing race for both of us, but especially for you. Um, And, you know, after our competition, which uh, I think we'll spend the bulk of our conversation discussing, um, we both sort of had to travel home under a certain amount of duress, given the situation unfolding around the world with the coronavirus. So before we kind of go into the details of the race and stuff, can you describe kind of what happened after the race uh, when you went to Lisbon and then your your Mm -hmm. return trip home and how things have been since you've been home? 
Yeah, I, it's it's really surreal, I guess, to think about the fact that it was just three weeks ago that we were on the Canary Islands because it seems like the, I mean, so much has changed since then. So that's a little bit crazy to wrap your head around. But um, yeah, so the after the race, um, which started on Friday night, most people were finishing on Saturday at some point. Um, and then there was a bunch of kind of award ceremony and post-race related festivities on Sunday. Um, and so I had traveled out to the island um, independently, but had a friend join me out there to help crew. And so as part of, I was just so grateful for her to be able to come out and join me. And so as part of that, um, I decided that, you know, we should, whatever it was that she wanted to do on our return trip home, that I'd be game for that. And she really wanted to stop over in Lisbon. Um, and we both really appreciate good wine and cheese and snacks. And so we had a, kind of some really fun activities planned in Lisbon after that. So we left on Monday and spent three days on, I think it was about three days in Lisbon. Um, and, you know, I think in Lisbon there at that point, there there hadn't been any confirmed cases or there maybe was, I think one or two in Portugal in total at that point. And, you know, people in the city were definitely more cautious. There was hand sanitizer out at all of the um, stores and shops and people were definitely kind of taking some precautions, but it generally didn't feel like there was anything too crazy um, on, on high alert at, at that point. Um, and then I, I believe both, because you guys, um, I know, traveled right after the race too. And it was the morning that I was flying back home that I woke up at, it was a Thursday morning, I woke up, I think at 3 a.m. for a 5 a.m. flight and was kind of just trying to streamline, like basically wake up, brush my teeth and go get in my Uber. And I wake up to a barrage of, of texts from friends and family because with the time zone difference, Trump had just announced, I think like an hour before that there was going to be a travel ban from all of Europe. Um, and at that point there were, there was no clarification, no rules, no, like no guidelines on what that actually meant. Um, and so, you know, accordingly, my, my family and friends were pretty stressed about whether or not we were going to make it home. And because there was no real information at that point, you know, I just, headed to the airport, got on my first flight and, you know, the doors, doors to the plane closed and everything seemed to be okay. So we, I flew, had a connection in Paris and then got on that next flight. And it wasn't really until that next flight back that then there were suddenly a ton, I mean, a ton of Americans that were on that flight, a lot of um, people that had been traveling, but also a lot of foreign exchange students um, and pretty much everyone, the, the kind of hustle and bustle on that plane was everyone was talking about how they heard about the travel ban and immediately booked a flight, packed up their stuff and, and got to the airport. So it was, um, I don't know, it was a little bit chaotic. Everything went home, I, you know, I got home without a hitch, but it was, seemed like I went from this kind of almost what some, seemed like an alternate reality of the race and just conversing with people and meeting new people and everything to just suddenly coming home to a city that was on high alert and essentially, you know, entering lockdown at that point. So it, it right. was a little bit of a abrupt adjustment back. Yeah. As they say on the internet, that escalated very quickly, right? Yeah. Like I had a very similar experience um, in terms of having my cell phone basically explode with notifications there that Wednesday night 
and having similar um, sort of messages from family who had just seen the press conference where our president had stated that there would be no travel back from Europe and we were due to arrive back just before the threshold at which that travel ban was going to be coming down. But of course, we were equally kind of frightened by the whole situation as well. And we're very thankful that uh, our travel was scheduled to go um, before that that scheduled ban, before ultimately realizing that it didn't apply to Americans. And I actually did read about what was happening at the Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris, as you described, where Americans uh, basically in a panic rushed to the airport in order to get home, and in some cases buying tickets at exceedingly expensive prices in order to to beat that travel ban um, before recognizing that it didn't, didn't actually apply to them. So luckily we both got home uh, safe and sound. Um, and I am assuming you you feel asymptomatic, and um, of course, I don't want this to be. I want this podcast to be as corona free as possible, but um, you know, it's it seems important to at least talk about it a little bit. You live in Seattle, as we've said a couple of times now, which was, of course, one of the first hot spots. Um, in the U.S., but seems to have maybe calmed down a little bit. Um, what's the situation on the ground in, in Seattle right now? How does it feel? Yeah, so people have been working from home and uh, staying out of school and essential businesses or non-essential businesses um, for quite a while. So, yeah, like you said, Seattle was one of the first places where there was an outbreak in the U.S., but um, fortunately, it seems like some of the early measures that were taken with closing schools and encouraging a lot of at least like the, the tech companies and stuff to get people working from home that was able to help slow things down a little bit. So we definitely are still seeing increases in cases. And, um, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail about that. But it, it, it seems like we're, you know, not in panic mode here. Um, but there have been just increasingly more um, restrictions and stuff popping up kind of every day, which, you know, just as, um, as a human and especially as an athlete, I think that that's been really hard for me to wrap my head around when I'm trying to do my best to stay positive and, and um, make plans and, you know, do the best that I can to kind of stay sane. But of course, when you have things kind of constantly closing, then that gets tricky. Um, and so I actually live um, Seattle area, but I'm in Issaquah, which is out in the foothills. Um, so I'm about a 30 minute, 30 minute to an hour long drive out of the city. Um, and I live with um, a lot of trail access in my backyard. And we recently have had all of that trail access closed. Um, and I, I think that, you know, part of this is because um, as more people were working from home and weather was nice, we had a really like kind of lovely week um, a bit ago in Seattle, which is abnormal for this time of year. It encouraged a lot of people to get out. And I think a lot of the um, trailheads outside of the city got really overwhelmed. Um, and so, you know, for, for one reason or another, it seems like most of those trails have now been closed, which is a bit of a bummer. But of course, like, you know, there are many more worse things that we could be complaining about. Um, so yeah. just been trying to adapt to that. And um, yeah, it's interesting because like in San Francisco or in Marin County specifically, you know, they've closed most of the parks, I think, 
or discouraging people to drive to the trails, right? But for our friends who live in Marin, they can run into the park and still enjoy the trail access. So um, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, erring on the side of caution is, is probably for the best at this point, but certainly frustrating, but also kind of the least of our problems at this point. And as long as we get a little fresh air, um, That'll be be good for mental and physical health. So moving on from the coronavirus, Kayla. <laughs> good. Things- I hope we can keep the rest of the talk clear, but I have yes. a feeling it'll creep back in. <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> moving on to more happy subjects in, uh, in your recent successes. Um, and, you know, I guess before we get to those, I think, you know, you've had this ability to kind of fly under the radar in your career so far. Um, even though you've had a lot of really good performances, you've been on the podium of Western States, you've been in the top 10 there at, at least three times, right? And among many other good results, but definitely like Trans Grand Canaria, I think was your sort of like big kind of international coming out party in which we can talk about more. But I want to, in this podcast, you know, really kind of give you the ability to, to introduce yourself. And um, for that reason, maybe give us a little bit of background as to really who Caitlin Gerben is, what your, your background is, you know, your roots, how you found the sport, et cetera, mm-hmm. before we, before we move into uh, the recent, recent race. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, you mentioned Midwest, so I'll start there. So I'm, I'm from Wisconsin. I grew up there my family lives there. Um, we, as a kid, I was just always outside. And at that point, you know, it was a lot of like climbing trees and going on camping trips and canoeing and fishing and all of the kind of typical outdoors things. But um, for me, running was never really something, honestly, that I enjoyed. I I ran as part of other sports. um, And I was always kind of involved in some sort of sport or activity. So team sports and growing up in middle school and high school, Um, And I also found snowboarding when I was in high school. Um, So I was really into that despite being in the Midwest where obviously there are no mountains. Um, And uh, it wasn't actually really until I got to college, I started running for fun um, for the first time ever, which I feel like (laughs) is kind of crazy to think about because it wasn't really that long ago. So this is 2007 um, when I was a freshman in college. And then I just moved to Madison. So I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. And Madison is such an awesome city and such an awesome running city. There's so many paths and there's a really nice arboretum and there's it's situated in between two lakes. So there's a lot of different really like, fun places to go and check out. So I started kind of using running really as a way to explore and explore my new city. Um, and I met friends through that and was just kind of, you know, casually jogging here and there to stay in shape. Um, So I was doing this for about two years and a friend of mine told me about a PE course that you could take through the University of Wisconsin. And this was a two credit introduction to distance running course. So like rigorous (laughs) curriculum there. Well, so they had a prerequisite that you had to be running 20 miles a week average for the last, I think, two months or so, something like that. Wow. So there was a prerequisite. But at that point, I mean, who really strongly <laughs> takes prerequisites into consideration <laughs> when you're, you know, a punk college student? Yeah. So I, I had been running, but also it, it was over the winter and I was mostly snowboarding. So I wasn't really doing a ton of running then. Um, 
and anyway, at, at that point for me, distance running, I mean, I was running, I don't know, three, five miles here and there. So for me, distance running was half marathon or something I thought okay I'll sign up for this class I'll meet some people I'll get some fundamentals and it might be a cool way to like build up to running a half marathon so on the first day of the class um, the professor tells everyone no actually to pass this class you are going to run a marathon by the end of the semester wow um so that is really what got me started in distance running and uh I'm so grateful for that class because I think honestly, if I hadn't signed up for it on a whim and um, I, I did not think it was possible at all to run a, a marathon at that point, that was so far out of my league, nothing I'd ever considered before. I didn't know anyone who did that. Um, running for more than an hour felt crazy to me. Um, so that was, I honestly, that really has, I think a lot to do with me getting into enjoying running learning some of the fundamentals, because I think we've talked about this before, about how you didn't have a background in, in high school or collegiate running or track mm-hmm. or field or anything. So um, it's it's hard to, I guess, find your way into things like that sometimes. And I think there's yeah. definitely been an, a huge increase in the number of people running marathons and trail running and everything over the last decade. So I guess I'm part of that increase. But um you know, it's, it was a kind of a fun way to get myself in the sport because I think I wouldn't have done it otherwise. That's so cool. And I bet that professor surprised a lot of people who thought they were signing up for a very easy kind of do nothing <laughs> class to all of exactly. a sudden, yeah, you've got to run, you've got to run it, you run a marathon. So yeah, a, a gym class that's two credits. I mean, right. come on, like, that's like yeah. should be as good as it gets. No, I, I remember similarly when I kind of started running for exercise to like going out for like a four mile run, you know, and coming back just feeling like, nobody has any idea what I just went through. You know, that was the most incredible accomplishment of my life. It's so funny to look back feeling like it really wasn't that long ago. So then, you know, was it then after you moved from uh, Madison to Seattle that you started running trails and started getting interested in ultras? Yeah, it, it took me actually a couple of years after living in Seattle. So I, um, when I graduated in 2011, I moved to Seattle to start graduate school at the University of Washington. Um, and at that point, I had run one marathon. So a, a quick addition to my story is that I actually uh, failed the class the first year <laughs> because I got injured on a, on a, a spring break snowboarding trip. Uh, okay. um, so I had an injury that kept me out of running for a full year. And then um, it took me, I guess, like about a year after that to kind of build back up to running and eventually did re-audit the class and complete, completed the class with a marathon. Um, so that was, that was awesome. So um, I had qualified for Boston on during that marathon. And so then my next marathon after I moved to Seattle was Boston. Um, and so I ran, I think, a handful of marathons, again, just, you know, for fun, recreationally, I was nowhere near the winning times. I mean, my marathon PR, which the last, I'll admit, the last time I ran a marathon was uh, 2014, probably, but my marathon PR is 330. Mm-hmm. So I was never anywhere in the league where I thought that I was good at running. I just okay. thought, you know, I was a fit, athletic person that could jump in and run a marathon at, you know, what is a reasonably fast pace, but nowhere near an elite level. 
Um, so I ran a few marathons over the next few years. And around that time, after moving to Seattle and having access to mountains, that's when my husband and I really just started diving headfirst into all mountain sports. And so we started hiking and backpacking. Um, we started rock climbing. I started backcountry skiing and snowboarding. Um, and it really was actually a few years of doing that with running being this kind of fitness thing I did on the side. And actually, like most of the time when I was running, it was my my commute to and from lab oh. and because I had a pretty rigorous schedule as a grad student. And so mostly I was just running, run commuting three miles each way to and from lab. And that was what I used as the majority of my training. And then on the weekends, we got out to the mountains when we could. Um, and then it was, I think, 2014 when I started trail running and um, my husband and I both signed up for 50K. And, and then, yeah, after that, I actually, I mean, that's a whole story in itself, but that was basically the start of, <laughs> of me trail, trail running and ultra running. That's so cool. Yeah, to go from not feeling like a good runner to winning Trans Grand Canaria, one of the truly great races in the world in the period of what, six, seven, eight years is a pretty amazing progression and, and probably something that you didn't foresee happening um, earlier in your life. So that's, that's really interesting and something that I kind of want to talk about now, you know, that, that being Trans Grand Canaria and your recent amazing victory there. Um, but before we talk about this year's race, this was your second uh, finish at Trans Grand Canaria, having finished second in 2019. Um, behind Magda Latsak, who was a, a two-time champion of the race. You were, what, about 15 minutes behind her in 2019. And under most circumstances, that would be like a pretty thrilling achievement for most runners. And I was really surprised, uh, having hung out with you before the race this year, to learn that you weren't particularly proud of that 2019 race, that it was a race where you didn't really feel like things were clicking, you weren't feeling particularly healthy beforehand. Can you tell us a little bit about that 2019 race? Give us the story about it and, and sort of why that um, sort of made you so motivated going into 2020? Yeah, so uh, as we were talking about a little bit before the race, as you mentioned, um, I had kind of an interesting day at, at Grand Canaria 2019. Um, and don't get me wrong, like a second place finish is awesome. And I was stoked about that. But um, I think for me, it felt a little bit weird to be getting some international attention and recognition for my performance at that race when I knew that for myself personally, like I, I knew that I could do better. And I knew that there were a lot of things that contributed to me having a a bad day out there. And, you know, thankfully I was able to turn things around, but, um, you know, I think like what some of the things that happened, like weren't necessarily mistakes, although certainly there were some mistakes that I made that I, you know, tried to improve upon, but it was just one of those days that I had gone into the race, really excited, feeling really well prepared. Um, I had big goals and I, you know, knew what I was capable of doing based on my training. Um, and it was kind of like, showing up at the starting line and just looking at the cards that were dealt to me that day and none of them were matching up with what my goals were. Um, and so a few of those things were, I just had gotten really sick right before the race. 
Um, and so one of my plans last year was to really push on some of the climbs because I felt like that was something I was specifically working on for that race. Um, but due to my congestion and, and kind of inability to, to breathe well, um, that wasn't going to really work. Um, I had some gear issues. I also um, was running the race essentially self-supported except for the aid station. So I didn't have um, any crew or anything. And so with that race in particular, you can get, you can leave one drop bag, which is at mile, at Garnieron aid station, which is somewhere around mile 50. Um, And so it's, you know, I had a really heavy pack um, trying to fit in all of my mandatory gear plus food to last me for 50 miles up to that, that point. Um, And yeah, just, almost like a hilarious amount of things that kind of went wrong for me. And I think the really good thing that came out of that race, um, which is why I'm really proud of my performance that that time was just that I really needed to um, dig deep and mentally reset what my expectations were. And I didn't have any, you know, any family member or crew or friend or anything to help me do that because I was there by myself. I didn't know anybody. And um, I think just having that experience of really hitting essentially rock bottom on the trail um, and then needing to kind of reflect on what I was doing and and reset my expectations was a really good experience to have. And because of that, I was able to turn my race around um, and still, you know, finish strong and, and manage to come in second place. So I'm super proud of that. But I think after that race last year, I kind of spent the rest of the year with, with TGC on the back of my mind, just wondering like, when's the time to go back? And could I go back and really have a good day on that course? And I, I really wanted to do that. And so I think that set me up with a little bit of extra um, fire to, to go back this year and, and see if I could improve on, on a lot of my mistakes and also on my time. Yeah, well, it's a great story, and I could tell that you had that fire. Like, it really did seem like you had a chip on your shoulder when we enjoyed our little happy hour together in Tejeda before the race. And again, yeah, it was surprising for me to hear that you weren't as proud of that performance as it would seem that you would be just based on the ultimate placement um, and, and how it turned out on paper. But, you know, obviously I can totally appreciate the fact that, yeah, sometimes, you know, we feel like we have underperformed, even if it has, you know, come with a certain level of, like you said, international recognition or, you know, just um, satisfaction of showing up pretty high in the results sheet, just knowing that you can do better sometimes feels worse than like the satisfaction of being on the podium right and I could tell that you were sort of carrying that that feeling into this year's race and the I I sort of talked about this kind of at the end of my uh, podcast with Pow but the women's field at Trans Grand Canaria this year was really like a murderer's row of top female ultra runners um, on the international scene and you know, that only kind of makes your victory this year, I think, even more impressive. And so in the field, we had people like Mimi Kotka, Audrey Tangay, Azara Garcia, Hu Zhao, the Chinese athlete who had just won the Hong Kong 100K, Casey Liktai, another very strong American, Natalie Mocklair, who's won UTMB. Um, 
and so again, you, you sort of like had this this chip on your shoulder in the experience of racing in 2019. How did that impact your mindset going into this year's race? Like, did you have goals, and what was your sort of like internal dialogue like before the race? Yeah. So I I did have goals, and I think part of that came from what I just told you about knowing that I could have a better performance myself on that course. Um, and so the interesting thing that I'm still definitely trying to figure out as someone who's competing at this level at internet, especially international races is like, how do you balance your own personal goals in your race against the course with your race against other athletes? Um, and I think like my approach this year was you know, to, to respect the other runners, because there are a lot of really fast, really strong women who I really look up to. Um, but I, I knew I couldn't control the day that they were going to have on the course. And I did know that I wanted to improve my own time. And so I was mostly focusing on kind of knowing what, what time did I run last year on some of these different sections? What do I think I could actually really do this year? And I'm going to just try to keep kind of those, you know, time frames in mind and then, you know, keep a gauge on where, where the rest of my competitors are earlier in the race. Um, and I knew that if I was running the times that I was hoping to, that that would be setting me up for, you know, potentially winning time. Um, and that anyone else who was holding those times with me was also on that same track. And then it's like, okay, we just got to let the race play out a little bit because it is an 80 mile long race with a lot of, you know, yeah. at least from American standards, a lot of vert and, you know, yeah. some pretty technical sections. Yeah. It's a hard race. Yeah. Proper, proper race. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to, to interrupt. No, you. no, no, it, 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 it is a hard, it's a hard race. Um, but I really, really love the course. I think because it's hard, but it's hard in very different ways. Like you, it, the course breaks up into, different sections where you know you've got a lot a lot of like steep big climbs but there's also a bunch of sections where there are runnable climbs and and runnable descents versus technical descents and then you know the heat of the day versus running a lot of it overnight so there's just so many different factors and for me I think like that keeps things really interesting and it helps kind of um, I don't know play play to different strengths I guess throughout the the race day. Cool. So, you know, I can totally appreciate you sort of like wanting to balance your, your competitive goals versus, you know, the elements that you're facing on a particular day, understanding that you're kind of competing against the island rather than the other women in the field. But to kind of press you a little bit on that sort of like mindset thing and racing against a field of this caliber, which was definitely more competitive than the 2019 race and definitely more competitive than the men's race this year. Um, how did that impact your sort of strategy or expectations of yourself? Like, are you somebody who innately kind of has that confidence of like, I, I can race on the level of these women. I am capable of this type of victory. Or are you the kind of person who, uh, maybe doesn't have that type of self-belief? Uh, that's a really good question. I think building that confidence is something that I've been trying to do throughout my years of 
of racing more competitively. Um, I don't think it really comes naturally because I think there's also like, at least for me, been a lot of imposter syndrome kind of built into myself standing on starting lines against some of the women that I, I've been on. And I think some of the first places where I was really experiencing that was at Western States. And maybe that's some stuff we can talk about later, but sure. um yeah, I, the the confidence has has definitely not always been there, but you know, I think I went into this particular race again knowing that knowing the time that I could run on it when I had a bad day. Um and even though the competition was was faster, I just knew that I was prepared to run hard and race fast and race the course and I think I actually was really um, energized and excited by all of the competition on the women's side this year um, for a few reasons. One, um, the the race this year decided to make their theme be trail as female. Right. And so I think that is part of the thing that helped recruit so many women. I think they kind of went out of their way to get more elite women in the field. Um, so that was that was just so powerful to like be up on stage before the race with all of these other women and just like, look, I'd be like, wow, this is a really crazy field. And, you know, many, I've, I've raced against some of those women before. Um, and most of the time, actually, they've all beat me. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I was trying not to think about that too much and just go into the race with my own, um, you know, kind of keeping my own goals in mind. But I think like, Definitely as the race was playing out and I was, you know, kind of seeing where I was at in the field and who I was racing against and when, um, it was actually kind of a, a pretty surreal moment because I think you never really, at least for me, like I never really go into a race expecting that I'm going to win or expecting that I'm going to be faster than, than the people I'm racing against. And you just try to do the best you can on that race day and trust your training and your preparation, um, and then just go after it. And so it was, it was pretty cool. And I think it made crossing the finish line in first, just that much more of a powerful experience for me, because it was really like something that I've been working towards for a long time. And I, not just for the buildup for this race, or um, even the last year since TGC, but standing on starting lines with competitive fields and just really wanting for years to be able to have one of those races where, you know, things come together in that way where I feel like I can have what I'll, you know, what I'll call a Caitlin race and everyone has their own version of what that means. But, um, that was pretty cool. It gives me goosebumps. Yeah. It's just like, what an amazing way to describe it. Like just, years of sacrifice and hard work sort of distilling into a single day where you have, you know, all the world-class performers you could ask for, you have perfect conditions and good training and everything just kind of lining up in a way that uh, you could be super proud of. Um, and it reminds me of a kind of a concept that I hear my coach talk about occasionally, Jason Coop, and that is this concept of like performance context, right? Like, so not only did you win Trans Grand Canaria, but you did so against world class, a world class field, and in a time that, even though in European style, they sort of changed the course pretty. Um, you know, frequently, but in, in, you know, the fastest time, certainly on this current course. And so sort of factoring all that stuff into 
um, the performance context, right, I think is just something that is really important for people to consider who, you know, are outside observers of the sport when they consider sort of like how these things are playing out. And, you know, kind of in that same vein, um, if you don't mind, I'd be really interested to kind of hear how things played out for you throughout the course of the race. Um, because like in the men's race, it was kind of boring, right? Like Pau and Pablo went out hard and basically it was a two-man race for, for most of the day. But I think it was a little bit different in the women's race. So mm-hmm. can you give us a, a little sort of rundown of how things developed over the course of the 80 miles? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief and give at least my perspective of it, which I know I probably am going to mix some people and times and places up because it all <laughs> kind of blends together a little bit. But um, so at the uh, start of the race, um, as expected, there were a few people that went out really hard. Um, and I, again, you know, was expecting that. Um, and I was going to try to figure out basically like, okay, how far outside of my comfort zone will it be to go their pace at the beginning versus kind of, you know, run, run my own race right from the beginning? Because I think that's something that I've definitely struggled with in other races about like, I think it's really good to run your own race. Um, but again, that's sometimes put me in a position where it's been, put me on the chase for too long. And sometimes there's not always enough time in the race to make that time back up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to be a little bit riskier than what I would normally be in some races. So, um, you know, I, I was running, I think in third or fourth, um, through some of the major initial checkpoints and ever, we were running hard. Um, so, you know, like you said, it's not necessarily course record with course changes and things, but, um, you know, we were running under the fastest times that people have run through those mm-hmm. courses on before. Um, and reports, you know, I was getting from my friend crewing was that, yeah, everyone's, everyone's racing and looking pretty good. So, um, I, I didn't know, um, you know, how close everyone was behind me. Um, but I did know, like I kept, for example, seeing Mimi, um, either in and out of checkpoints as I was leaving, I'd see her or there were, um, I'm not sure if you had any issues with this, but there are a few places where in towns, especially where the course markings were a little bit confusing. Um, and there were a number of times where I kind of had to do a 180 to get back onto what the course was. And then, so Mimi and I kind of kept seeing each other. So I knew she was right there and, you know, it was actually kind of fun. We'd always like, you know, get a little bit of an extra boost and especially I just maybe add quick here that, um, all of the women racing were just so supportive of each other and so excited and so stoked. And I think like part of that, which, um, and if anyone saw photos of the starting line of the race, but they asked all the women to come to the front. And yeah. I think that experience just was like, I don't know, at least for me, it got me really energized and excited and super stoked on the other women racing, especially knowing that we were all running, you know, as strong and as fast as, as we were on the course mm-hmm. that day. So, um, it pretty much every time anyone saw anyone, it was always kind of like a get a girl kind of mentality. So awesome. that was cool. Um, so yeah, I kept seeing Mimi and I, I figured that given the strength of the other women, that there was a pack of women probably really close behind her. Um, and I actually didn't, I think things ended up separating out a bit behind me, but I, I didn't have any of that insight kind of as I was running. 
Um, and so for a while, um, yeah, I was kind of coming into checkpoints and knowing that I was, I, I want to say, you know, less than 10 minutes generally behind uh, the women in the front. And so that was Asara um, and, and also Audrey was in front for a while. Um, and now I do not even remembering who was in front. Before. Was it Fujiao, the Chinese? Fujiao. Yeah. Um, it might have been Fujiao. Yeah, see, this is why I probably should have, yeah. like, looked at no, a couple a, of the yeah, Chinese a, a general gist is fine, you know, I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah, but so essentially there was one moment uh, in the middle of the night, and I, again, don't remember which aid station this was because everything kind of was just, like, dark and I was just running <laughs> but I came in at one point and my my friend Sam told me like oh she's only three minutes ahead and I was like what do you mean she like I thought there were two people ahead of me and she's like no like you're the second woman in and I actually didn't believe her oh. um, because I I just I'd never noticed myself passing anyone I'm not sure if it was in an aid station or, or I'm not entirely sure what happened but um, so I'm like, okay, three minutes behind. And so that turned out that I was three minutes behind Asara. Um, and that kind of three minute gap continued for the next few aid stations. Um, and so I knew we were, I knew she, um, you know, her and I were moving at a really similar pace. And mm -hmm. I'd also heard um, from my friend that, you know, she was looking good and strong. And so I'm like, okay, we're both like racing and running this. So I kind of figured that with us both running about the same time, same paces in between the aid stations, like eventually, you know, we'd probably see each other. I'd probably catch her um, just because that was still so early in the race. And it wasn't until after leaving um, Tejeda, actually, that again, I was about two or three minutes behind her. Um, and I finally caught a glimpse of her actually as we're getting up to Roque Nublo. And so this is the kind of iconic high point of the race. There are a ton of photographers and journalists that just kind of like line this section of the course because there's a short, I don't know, probably a couple minute out and back where you go out on the rock and it's just this like gorgeous um, viewpoint. And um, so like I find myself finally getting a glimpse of her as we're both getting out to this out and back. And I wasn't actually feeling all that great as I was going up that climb. It's a long yeah. climb. It was hot. Um, you know, I was working, but I'm sure she probably was also in, in a similar position. So she looked back, she saw me and I'm like, Oh, dang it. We saw each other. I didn't yeah. know if I was like ready for that moment yet because, you know, at that point you're, you know, I'm, you know, supporting her, but also trying to be a little bit strategic. So um, we see each other and then um, we end up actually being on the out and back at the same time, which again, the photographers, I didn't just eat that up. <laughs> it's yeah. like so much to see the chase. And funny enough, like I found myself in the exact same position last year um, where it was uh, Magda who ended up winning, Fernanda Maciel and myself that were all up at Rookie Nublo. It's a top three women um, kind of passing each other. And so I, it was like a repeat of last year where like the top, the top runners are now, you know, basically giving each other high fives on the out and back, but now being like, okay, now the race is yeah, on here. Yeah. Here we go. Um, and from there it's about 30 miles left with a net descent. Although there's definitely, um, some pretty punchy climbs yeah. as you're finishing that, that, um, last part of the course. So I ended up, um, catching Asara on the descent, um, 
right after Roka Nublo. And uh, we actually, I mean, like she was running strong. Like I said, we had been running basically the same pace for the last 30 miles. Um, and so we started just running together. Um, and I was anticipating that we would be running together at least for a while. Cause at that point I still feel like there's so much time left in the race and mm-hmm. with um, the heat of the day increasing and stuff, it's, you know, and I, I was pushing and I'd been running by myself for the majority of the night. And I think she had been too. So I was actually really looking forward to having someone to, to run with so we could kind of help push because at that point, you know, we were both running, you know, essentially course record pace. Yeah. And I thought that working together, we probably could really, you know, push a bit more. So, um, unfortunately though, we, we get into the next aid station, which is Garnieron, which is where the drop bag is. And I, um, didn't have crew there because it's really hard to have a crew person go and hit basically those next few aid stations. So I, told um, my friend to skip that that point. So I had a drop bag with a few things to pick up. Um, she had crew, so she was able to get in and out of there a little bit faster. Um, and they were starting the marathon distance race literally right as we were walking up. So we like <laughs> hear all this loud music and commotion and cheering. And so we both kind of look at each other like, what is going on? And then this is we're running up and we get up there and just see like these, th- I, don't, I don't know how many people, but I want to say it was thousands, yeah. <laughs> maybe 2000 runners or something, all leaving the corral to go on the single track on the technical climb out of that aid station. And we just are like, Oh boy, like this is going to be interesting. So I needless to say, you get, you get stuck behind the entire field of one of the shorter races. Yes. Yes. Um, and stuck at the start when people are like all bunched up kind of like cattle path waiting to get up. Um, so yeah, Asar and I lost contact of each other during <laughs> during that moment. <laughs> like, and where's Waldo? Yeah. yeah, really. You know, it's like where where is she? And I actually um, at that point, I kind of I thought I lost the race there. Like I thought I lost my chance because she had gotten in and out of that aid station so quick that I thought that maybe you know, because of her position, she had been able to get around people before they really start going up the climb or like, I didn't know, I, and I couldn't see her. And I had been working so hard to catch her to the, and then we ran together. And then for her to like take off there before me, when I like didn't even have a visual contact of her, just ma- made me think for a while, like, well, the, here this goes, like now I have to pass, you know, a thousand plus runners on dusty, you know, technical, technical single, yeah. single track. Um, this is something I didn't plan for. I don't know how this is going to affect my pace. Um, so I, you know, got a little bummed out for a bit, but, um, you know, you just kind of accept, okay, this is the reality. We're both going through this. Anyone who comes behind us is also going through this. So, um, yeah, we, I ended up actually finding her again too, but we are really playing like almost Frogger trying to pass people as, you know, respectfully and safely as possible while also still racing um and so we were kind of running together passing people for a while and then um after a while I just lost contact of her I actually thought she was right behind me but there's so many people that I I couldn't ever look back to see if that was her and it turns out it was some guy who I think I jumped on my bandwagon to pass people (laughs) so um so then yeah I see after after that point um I was, you know, kind of just racing and, and 
expecting that maybe I would see Asara come through, but I never saw her again after that. Um, and I guess the, the rest of the race for me was relatively uneventful, except that I definitely made some mistakes in the last, kind of the, fi- I think actually like after going through and make, passing all those, um, all the runners from the marathon distance, it just was harder to keep track of my fueling and drinking. And it was mm-hmm. a lot dustier because everyone was kicking up dirt. And so I, I think I, I didn't do the best job keeping up with my fueling and hydration there. Um, and that came to bite me in the final kind of 13 miles of the race when you're going through this kind of rocky riverbed canyon that's super hot. Um, and I, I was... I hit a pretty bad low, um, and was slowing down quite a bit, but, um, you know, I, I made it through that and, you know, all, all is well, but I think the, the good thing for me is that I, I definitely have like looking back at the race, there are definitely things that I would like to improve on, um, and maybe mistakes that I could manage better that, you know, if I was able to go back next year or in another year that I think give me some things to work on. That's so great. And uh, yeah, I wasn't aware that uh, you guys had sort of had that sort of um, cat and mouse game where you ran together a bit and back and forth. Uh, and it, it's funny when you look at the elevation profile of Trans Grand Canaria, it, it does look like the last marathon is just basically a, a downhill sort of cakewalk to the finish line, but it is just immensely difficult. It gets very hot. It's incredibly technical and then those last 10 miles are just pretty pretty miserable <laughs> they're <So> brutal <laughs> I, had, I had a similar experience just kind of like getting lazy with my nutrition in the last couple hours and just not feeling particularly great but yeah what a cool race it is and um there's a reason why it is such an important race on on the circuit and um yeah like i said just really cool for you to um have such an awesome performance on such a big stage. Um, now, kind of like looking back, I think one of the other things that we have in common is that we both learned a lot from our first runs at Transgrand. Um, like I remember you, well, you've said a couple of times you didn't have a crew in last year's race, 2019. You didn't use poles in 2019. I did the race in 2014 and suffered mightily um, having arrived only 24 hours before the race and also traveling alone in my first international race. Um, and, you know, using that experience for me was like huge valuable in my career, not only my return back to Transgrand Canaria, but in, in all the other sort of like international races that I had done. Do you have a similar feeling, like looking back at 2019, like just shaking your head, like, man, I, I can't believe I would come to a race like this without a crew and without poles, you know, and, and how much of a major advantage it is too. Like for me, um, you know, having somebody crew for me is really like the most important thing, particularly um, you know, speaking specifically about the men's races where it seems that most of the separation happens at aid stations. And so having somebody there with you who knows what you want, who you look forward to seeing provides like a huge, not only psychological boost, but like a competitive advantage. I feel like, do you have a a similar feeling to me kind of like looking back at 2019, sort of like 
thinking, what was I thinking? But also thank goodness <laughs> for that experience. I learned so much. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, I think if you're able to travel with a crew, even if it's just one person, can make a big difference. I mean, there were plenty of reasons why I wasn't able to have someone come and join me last year. Um, it was a last minute trip. And, you know, I like financially, I think that's hard yeah. to make a trip out there and taking time off work and everything. So, um, you know, I've no regrets about it. Um, but I, I think you're right. Like for, for races, um, let's say local races here and even hundreds and stuff like I actually like, don't, feel like, like I'd be, I would be okay just doing aid stations and drop bags and stuff. But the difference is when, like you said, like when there is a high level of competition and so the race is so close that it really often comes down to, um, just a minute difference here and there at the aid stations and being efficient. And so, especially for, you know, races, at least my experience so far for a lot of the European races is if you don't have a crew, there's actually, you know, and you've got a drop bag or something, there are limited places you can do that. You also often have um, a spot where crew is allowed to crew from. And if you don't have a crew, then you're going to a separate area, which is maybe a little bit mm-hmm. further back and people can't just help you fill up your waters. You know, you're really doing it self-supported. And I think, you know, races are a little bit different on their rules for that. But um, I think, yeah, for, for me this year, that just made a, a huge a huge difference. And again, it's like, like you said, it's kind of funny to look back at some of the, what I would consider rookie, rookie mistakes, or just maybe even by being naive or something about what, what, how, how to approach a race like that. Yeah. But I think that's definitely something that um, is kind of fun to figure out is like the European style of races um, and how the competition goes and the courses and just how everything, the logistics are laid out is quite a bit different than most of the low key kind of local grassroots style races back here. And I love both of the experiences for different reasons, but I think in order to have success at each of them, you kind of have to apply a different strategy. Um, and totally. so yeah. I did not have that in mind last year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's really cool. And, uh, just kind of piggybacking on what you're saying, you know, when you do have something on the line and you have sponsors who have expectations and you have um, big goals set out for yourself, um, it really does take a much bigger, uh, kind of set of considerations, uh, than you would take to normal, kind of backyard 50k which is obvious but um yeah I think just seeing the progression in your career and learning those things I think is valuable for um you know people who who might be listening to this so that they don't make similar mistakes than than we did but certainly the only way to to really learn is to kind of go through those things and especially as you said like the European style is just so so different and can be kind of a shock to the system and um, you know not an environment uh, conducive to success if you're you're uh, sort of caught off guard by it but sort of like talking a little bit about something that you touched on a little bit earlier that I think is really relevant and will be interesting for people. As I said, at least in my opinion, Transgrand Canaria is probably like the biggest performance of your career. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. So, you know, like having achieved a victory there and, and having, um, you know, 
performed in a way that you're like super proud of on the one of the biggest stages in the world mentioned before like you're sort of prone to maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome or maybe not having as much confidence in yourself I feel very similarly like I always feel like oh man like I'm racing against this guy he's done this and this he's done this amount of training I'm you know I'm not in his league sort of thing how -hmm. does this change your relationship to yourself and going forward how does this make you sort of um, maybe approach the goals that you have in a different way uh I mean I don't know. I wish I could say that the imposter syndrome will be gone, but I think everyone has imposter syndrome at some point, right? And totally. even if your if your level of what you're comparing to changes a little bit, like you still might have imposter syndrome yeah. about that. But I think like I'm I'm starting to do a better job listening to that voice inside my head, which is telling me that you're not crazy. You can do these things. Like you can set those big goals and you know, maybe I'm not going to um, go around and, you know, I don't know, <laughs> like make all of my my personal goals super public and stuff because I think like that is maybe a level of vulnerability that I, I'm not quite there yet um, or confidence or whatever you want to call it. But um, no, I, I, I think I've I've gotten, especially over the last few years, more and more performances that have helped prove to me that I can actually do and accomplish the things that I'm, you know, daydreaming about doing. But I think it's not that kind of confidence doesn't necessarily come easy. And I think it's also healthy to have a, a little sense of like, I don't know, I don't, I'm not saying people should have imposter syndrome, but I also think like just approaching things with a cocky and confident attitude can can not always turn out so well. Like I think it's good to be humble and I think it's good to kind of question and, and check in with yourself about what your goals are. And um, again, like, you know, not everyone, like you might show up to a race perfectly well-trained and in the right headspace and then things out of your control just go wrong. And like that happens and that's okay. And that's certainly happened to me many times. And I'm sure you've had similar experiences. I mean, both of us with TGC, our first years, like we've had that happen, but I think it's important to find things to find ways to look at those experiences as, as experiences, even if they're not the races that you want and figure out what things are you learning from them that you can pull forward into you know, future races, because I don't, I don't see each race as kind of its own thing. Like I see this as a whole process and, you know, I love racing, but I also just really love running and training and adventuring and racing is just a part of that. And so I try not to, um, get too, get too cocky over one good performance in the same way that I also don't want to put too much pressure on myself for one particular race. Yeah, no, it's really great. And, uh, yeah, I think just speaks to kind of like the human element of things because like, you know, it it's easy to then feel like, oh, hey, um, you know, I've won Trans Grand Canaria. Now it's my opportunity to kind of go to UTMB and, you know, approach that with a different attitude, which may ultimately not lend itself to, you know, the same performance or may uh, come with more pressure or just kind of change 
your personal ethos and um, kind of like your spirit that you bring towards each race and to the sport in general. So, um, you know, kudos to you for uh, keeping a good head on your shoulders, even though now you're a, a big famous ultra runner. Um, <laughs> So you're kind of transitioning away from Trans Grand Canaria uh, and towards another, I think, important thing that um, you've kind of brought to the forefront. After the race, I watched your interview with Brian Powell from Iron Far, and you, you guys talked a bit about uh, sort of like body image stuff. And, you know, in speaking about just now, like your relationship with yourself and how running can... Uh, usually like is a great way to sort of improve how we view ourselves, right? We keep setting these amazing goals. We keep proving to ourselves that we have um, so much more strength and, and uh, courage in us than maybe we feel internally like we have, but also like sometimes we're constantly being compared to others in terms of our results and our training. And, and that can also come with some, some negative self-talk as well and I thought it was really interesting and powerful that after Trans Grand Canaria you use that opportunity to talk a bit about body image stuff and to me it was kind of surprising to hear you know that you may have a little insecurity there because you know to me you look like a totally normal athletic woman can you talk a little bit about that that subject um and maybe why you may feel a, a little insecurity there or maybe how other women should think about the quote unquote, like runner's body. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, I'm glad we're talking about this and I would love to hear a little bit of your own personal take on this because I, I tried to mention this in the interview with Brian, but I think this is such a personal topic for people. And I really hope that, you know, people, we can start to remove the stigma about this and start talking about it more openly. And I definitely want to acknowledge that it's not just women that um, have these kinds of body type, you know, issues um, or, or self images, self image issues. Um, men have it too. And there's also a lot of different, I think, um, flavors of how this can come out too. And so, you know, when I'm talking about this, I'm only really trying to speak about my own personal experience. And I recognize that there are a lot of people with personal stories. And um, I would love to hear more people share those kinds of things. And there've already been a lot of really awesome role models in our sport, especially that have come forward um, in, in talking about body image issues and, and social pressures and stuff to kind of have that athlete's body. Um, and so, you know, for me, like this has been something that I've kind of just always had a little bit in the back of my mind and sometimes it comes up more than others. But, um, you know, I, especially I think because I didn't grow up as a runner and I didn't run in college and I probably have had held on to some insecurities from that when I've stood on the starting line with really, really fast women who I know have thrown down some like crazy times on, on, um, you know, races that I couldn't, 
never touch. And maybe I don't want to, that's fine. But, you know, I think like, there's just, like you said, there's always comparisons that can be drawn and like, that's part of the sport. But I also think like some of the negatives about that are, are when we start comparing ourselves to people. And so, you know, body image is one of those things that, you know, I don't, I'm not very tall and slender and don't have what I would consider as like the stereotypical runner's body. And that's okay. Like I am proving myself that like, there are a lot of different ways that you can look and how you look really doesn't matter. It's what your body can do for you. And um, I think like just having a little bit more of an open dialogue about, about that and recognizing that, you know, if you want to know what a runner's body is, step out the door and go run. That's yeah. your runner's body, right? Like everyone's, everyone is doing incredible things. And I think like starting to shift a focus more to um, what, you know, but I don't know, I guess just there's a lot of different <laughs> different ways to look and that's great and that's fine. But I think um, definitely as an elite athlete, as I've been working my way to competing at this level, like that's something that I've noticed and other people have commented on too that I, you know, like don't always look the same. And, you know, that's something that I think now I'm really confident about and I'm proud of, of my body and proud of the strength that I have. Um, but especially when I was just starting in the sport, um, that was something that was a little bit hard for me. Well, thank you for, for being honest about it. And, and yeah, like, as you mentioned, it's not something that's female specific. And I remember having grown up a team sport athlete too. And when I was playing lacrosse in college, like for me, it was always like the coaches and teammates sort of valuing being a little bit bulkier um like sort of team sport field sport athletic and me wanting to actually gain weight and I never really put any thought into then the importance of kind of like being smaller and losing weight as a result of you know being an endurance athlete or in service of being a better endurance athlete like that was just because I didn't grow up in a running environment like I was just never taught that losing weight makes you faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it sounds like super naive, right? But like, it's totally true. And I remember like before TDS a couple of years ago, I intentionally lost like three pounds, like not a lot of weight. And, you know, also acknowledging on the front end, I'm six foot three, like it's, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, don't look the same way that most of the people in our sport look. And even though it's not really a source of, um, you know, I guess sensitivity or insecurity, you know, I think definitely sometimes I feel like, Oh, maybe I might be at a disadvantage compared to somebody else who's smaller, lighter when they're climbing, et cetera. And so, you know, for the only time in my career that I intentionally tried to lose a couple pounds and felt like amazing, while I was training and I talked to my coach and I said, coach, like, why didn't you tell me to freaking lose weight earlier in my career? He was like, mm -hmm. Dude, you, don't, you don't need to lose weight. And that's a slippery mm -hmm. slope, you know? And um, so, yeah, I, I think it's just uh, an important thing for people to acknowledge, right? Because like now looking back, I don't, I'm not convinced that it was the fact that I was a little bit lighter, that I felt great in my mm -hmm. training, but, mm -hmm. you know, that it was a, a confluence of everything else of just, you know, uh, having a lot of energy, uh, training in the right environment, being super motivated, all those things. And that, yeah, like, you know, me being 
much larger than, than most of the people in the field is not necessarily, you know, a disadvantage. So I appreciate you uh, sort of opining on that and, and being open with us because I think it is something that some people um, will find valuable and, and maybe uh, lift a little bit of insecurity for others who have uh, big ambitions but maybe don't fit the, the stereotypical mold. So one last thing to sort of touch on that I think is maybe also a little bit inside baseball that I think people will find interesting is this uh, environment of like sponsors in the sport and you having um, just switched teams and signing with the North Face, making us teammates after being with La Sportiva for the last few years. And you and I sort of communicated a bit as you were kind of making your decision at the end of 2019 and you put a lot of thought into it. And if you don't mind um, being that sort of, I had a front row seat uh, or at least a little bit to you, to you sort of going through that decision-making process. I think it would be interesting to share a little bit about that with the audience. Do you mind just kind of like giving us a glimpse into what your considerations were um, in deciding who you want to do align yourself with uh, sponsorship-wise, and, and what went into that decision? Yeah, um, definitely. And you, you feel free to kind of chime in here as you as you wish. But I, for me, um, switching sponsors and, and finding a sponsor to work with is a really big decision because I'm seeing it as more than just a transaction. Like what I'm really looking for is a relationship with a brand and a relationship with the teammates and the rest of the athletes. And I'm looking for something long-term too, not, um, something, you know, I, I don't see myself as, as switching frequently. And of course some people can do that and, that and that's fine, but that's just not really what I've been looking for. So, um, I think in some of the conversations I was having with you, I mean, obviously like, you know, gear and support and stuff all comes into play, but other things I was really considering was like just what what the environment is like within the company, um, how the athletes kind of help support each other, what kinds of relationships and stuff there are there. And one thing that really drew me to the North Face is just like it's so clear, especially now that I'm on the team, that there's just such a, a you know internal community of athletes, even across disciplines that are supporting each other. And I find that really awesome. Um, it also doesn't hurt that like some of my lifelong idols are on the TNF team. <laughs> so that, that's definitely a little surreal to be on some email chains with them. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I was really looking for a good fit. Um, but I think like, I don't know, it's, it's, it wasn't an easy decision. I went back and forth over this for a long time. And there are a lot of kind of other uh, things in my life changing around the same time as I was, you know, kind of going through the end of last year and trying to figure out how I could make more space in my work-life balance so that I, I could travel to races and I could travel and spend a couple of days before a race checking out a course. And, um, you know, with increasing involvement as an athlete um, with a brand like TNF, I also wanted to make sure I was able to carve out some space for myself to be able to be involved um, on that level too, so that it wasn't just, um, you know, kind of, get some gear and take some photos and post something on Instagram. Like I was really, really looking for some, a way to be kind of more involved. And, you know, despite uh, 
the the stress and and uh, highs and lows of going through kind of major life changes and decisions and stuff like that. All all the cards aligned, and I couldn't be happier to be part of TNF. Um, it's been just an awesome experience and awesome community and you know even despite kind of all the the turmoil and changes and cancellations and stuff that are going on right now um it's clear that you know they really care about the athletes and i'm i've been really happy to kind of find my way um to get integrated into that community yeah it's great and and i think it's important to just kind of like highlight a couple of things right like for some people it may seem like, oh, you know, whoever gives me the best offer, whoever gives me the most opportunities, you know, I, I'm going to sign with that, that company. And, you know, I think you and I are similar in that it, and I think the, the mo- people who are most successful in the sport and who do develop those long-term relationships, as you said, are those who have those other really important considerations in mind for the people that I'm interacting with. But we all want to like have an impact and make contributions with what we do. If it all it is is you know getting flights paid for and free shoes and you know getting paid or whatever, and you're not developing relationships and you're not feeling like you're contributing, then you know what what good is it, right? And and how long is it going to be good for? And I think the answer to that is typically going to be unsatisfactory to most people and so I I just think for those who may be listening who have ambitions of their way up in the sport and be making a somewhat of a career out of it although that's you know the the word professional in our sport is usually used in in air quotes um you know I think those are the things that are important to to consider um rather than just like who can who can support me the most but of course like having better support helps a lot <laughs> not mm-hmm. only in terms of your ability to perform but really like in how you psychologically kind of think of yourself and how your confidence works and is it fair to say you know without going into specifics that like signing with the north face kind of brought you more support like to the next level of support and did that change you know um your i don't know again like your internal feeling of like how much you can achieve um i mean i it's definitely fair to say that i think for me you know north face helped me level up um and i hope that i can you know continue to perform at that at that next level um but I'm also, you know, want to be cautious that I'm not putting additional pressure on myself to perform just because I'm working with the North Face. And, you know, I guess that's another consideration um, in looking and working with brands is that, you know, certainly brands can have um, different expectations of their athletes in terms of performances. And um, some people handle that kind of external pressure really well. Um, for myself, I'm definitely more of an internally motivated person. And, um, you know, external pressure doesn't really do anything except for stress me out. So I'm like, you know, that's another thing in terms of like looking for a fit. So I don't think my mindset has changed in, in that sense much more. But it, it is definitely helping open up doors. I mean, even just like having a conversation with you now and getting to hang out with you before 
before TGC and stuff. I mean, it's, it's helping open the door to this amazing community of athletes across the globe. And I think that definitely, um, in terms of, you know, boosting confidence, sure, but also just in, in terms of kind of helping, helping me grow my community. Um, that mm-hmm. is definitely, you know, it definitely improving with, with working with the North Face. Yeah. And I think it just sort of speaks to kind of like the intangible things that go into achieving what you want to. And I think what I guess brought it into my mind is, do you know who Shay Serrano is? He's a, he's a writer. He's mostly like a sports and pop culture writer, but he's written a few books. Do you know who he is? I don't, but I also don't know anything about yeah. any pop culture at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was I was listening to a, a podcast with him, and um, he was talking because he has no like formal training as a writer, and you know, it wasn't until he kind of like got connected with Bill Simmons, who again you're not going to know, but who's like a legendary like sports journalist, that where Shay like felt that he had his kind of like big break right and and Mm -hmm. was able to finally like think of himself as as a writer and was able to uh have the time and uh and resources then to pursue what he wanted to creatively and I, I was just thinking how similar it is for me right like uh you know before the North Face I ran for Pearl Izumi and another kind of small brand cool brand and um you know that sort of relationship ran its course and I was really lucky to come on North Face, and and it even though again it didn't really change how I looked at myself and how motivated I was to perform, it did just kind of like help to, yeah, just sort of like it was a big break, right? And it, it yeah. allows you to then um, that all those intangible things that that you just mentioned in order to to really pursue your dreams. So. It's really cool, and um, yeah, it's, I'm sure it'll come off as a totally shameless sponsor plug. But um, <laughs> but we're, we we're both on the yeah. same team, so yeah, we can do that. Right, <laughs> okay. No, no advertisement. So I uh, hope people will not to hold it against me too much. So anyway, well, Caitlin, thank you so much for your time. It's it's super fun to chat with you. Um, the uh, the technical difficulties I, I think will be able to be negotiated here on the back end. This is of course why I wanted to do it in person, but I appreciate you giving us so much time, and and hopefully we will be able to uh, hang out in person sooner rather than later. I hope so too. <laughs> okay, stay safe up there in the in the great Northwest. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Thank you, Caitlin. That was really fun appreciate her openness her honesty and generally her good attitude i thought that really came across i think she's got an extremely bright future and i'm really glad she's getting the attention and support that she deserves i think the sky is the limit go ahead and follow caitlin she's easy to find on the instagram so long as you spell her first name correctly sure she'd appreciate a follow and yeah thank you guys for tuning in always a pleasure if you feel like it you can rate subscribe review whatever if you don't feel like it no big deal but please keep tuning in i hope to have a lot more for you here very soon thanks so much